Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Manchester's indie rock and roll station XS Manchester The XS Manchester Long Player An iconic album in full With Jim Salverson XS Manchester Hello, I'm Jim Salverson, and this is the XS Long Player Classic albums discussed with the people who made them I've been looking forward to publishing today's podcast Not least because the man I'm talking to, as you'll hear in the podcast, I've known for a few years. We used to work together at a radio station that doesn't exist anymore, but from which Excess Manchester kind of rose. But throughout the entire period, working together, seeing each other in the office every day, going out for beers, we've never chatted about his music. I'm talking about Clint Boone, songwriter and keyboardist, or should that be organist, in the Inspiral Carpets. And the album that we're talking about today on the podcast is their debut album, Life. So there's loads of chat about not only the process between writing these songs and how they came about and what the Manchester scene was like at the time, there's also a focus about the very beginnings of the band and how they came about and how they came together. Let's get stuck into it. Clint Boone talking about the Inspiral Carpets. Life is today's Excess Long Player. How's it going, Clint? Really good, really good. Getting there now, busy again, which is nice. Good. It occurred to me before we sat down to do this that I reckon I've known you for about 15 years. Yeah. And I don't think at any point over those 15 years we've ever chatted about your music. We've like, talked about kids and dogs and yeah. shelves, but I don't think we've ever talked about actually the music you made. But I'm looking forward to finding out more about the early days of the Inspiral Carpets. Yeah, it's good timing as well because the album that we're going to talk about is actually out tomorrow, isn't it? Well, yeah. Reissued. Out for the second time, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we are talking about Inspiral Carpets' life, which is certainly classed as a classic album in my eyes, and it's why it's on the Excess Long Player. Do you see it that way? Obviously, you're a DJ, you work on Excess Manchester, you play your own songs on the radio occasionally. When you hit play, do you kind of sit back and go, oh, this is, this is all right, <laughs> this is pretty good? I understand its importance, particularly in the Inspirals um, catalogue. It, it was a big moment because, as with any band's debut album, it's not just going into the countryside in a studio for three months and doing an album. It's, mm. it's five years of, of writing and gigging and doing pubs. and So that's what life was for us. It was the um, the culmination of that everything from 1985 up to when it came out in 1990. Whereas The Beast Inside, the, the second album and the, the subsequent third and fourth albums, they, they were sort of written in a specific period of time and then we recorded them in a two or three month period in a posh studio somewhere, mm. you know what I mean? But life was... Um, I've got more memories of life, the album, than any other of our albums. So, some of the later albums, I can't remember anything about them. <laughs> like, like Revenge of the Goldfish and uh, Devil Hopping. They, they, I don't have a lot of memories. Yeah. But with life, 
it's quite vivid memory of it. Not always dead accurate, you know, but it's uh, I do have vivid memories of it, and I think it's because it was such a massive moment in my life. Mm. You know what I mean? I'd always, I'd, from being a teenager, I'd wanted to make a record, you know, a single, get a song on a record, and I'd always uh, been obsessed about that idea. But to actually make it to that point where you've, you've made an album with your mates, mm. and, and by this point we were professional musicians, you know, we, we yeah. didn't have, we got rid of the job, so you do remember it because it's like you know, whereas a few months earlier or a year earlier, I was driving a van round uh, Ashton on the line for, for a living. Mm. Suddenly I was getting up every day and going, hanging out with my band, writing songs, rehearsing and recording for a living. And it was like just a massive moment in time for me. That Because you have that longer period being poured into a debut album, like you say, five years as opposed to 12 months in the studio, whatever it is, does that mean the album ends up being more authentic, more of a reflection of you and the band than maybe what comes later? I would say so, yeah. And it also captured a lot of that live spirit that we had because we were a mm. great live band at that point. Well, we were always, we still are, technically, <laughs> when we do stuff. But yeah, it captured, it, it captured that authenticity of this, uh, you know, slightly rough around the edges garage band mm. that could also do great pop. But the interesting thing with the Life album is there's songs on there and, and pieces of music on there that when I joined the band in 86, I think it was 86 when I joined, there was little psychedelic refrains, if you like, that we used to use on stage and there's elements of that on the Life album. And then at the same time, you get this this hint of where we're going next, which is massive pop tunes, mm. like This is How It Feels is on that album. You know, So you've got this like really cheaply recorded garage music album. And we weren't great instrumentalists. I said that with my hand on my heart. We weren't great musicians, really. But on that is this gem, this how it feels to be lonely, which is still played, yeah. you know, not only on the radio all over the place, but the stadiums are singing it every every weekend at football matches and there's, you know, Sky Sports are using it on cricket games. It's just like that that little song in the middle of that crazy album mm. is still a monumental piece of music now, you know. We're gonna talk more about this how it feels and some of the other tracks off the album in a little bit. I wanna take you back to the early days of the band though, because you mentioned when you joined. You kind of joined the band pretty late, didn't you? They were an entity and then you were helping them record and then you kind of slowly <laughs> morphed into a member of the band. Yeah. Was that an easy transition to make? And was it then a tricky path to tread? Because you listened to life as an album and you're, for want of a better phrase, size nines are all over it. Like the keyboard is really prominent. Mm. As a musician, you're really prominent. And as a songwriter, yeah. obviously you're really prominent as well. So was it difficult to kind of join the band late and then have that level of impact? It felt really spontaneous, to be honest with you. I mean, the the, the short backstory was that Graham Lambert and uh, Stephen Hall, guitar and vocals respectively, they started a, a version of the band in 1983 and it was called The Furs at the beginning. They were, they were really into right. the psychedelic furs. So they called the, the initial version was The Furs. And then before I joined, there's all sorts of kids coming in and out of the band. This is way before they made any records or mm. did gigs outside of Graham's dad's garage. They used to do gigs in the garage and the, the kids off the street would come and watch, <laughs> you know what I mean? So by the time I met them, it was, um, I think it was 1985 when they started coming to me to record their demos because I had a little studio in Ashton, mm. Ashton Underline. And I just used to record these cheap four-track cassette demos for bands. And that's how I met the Inspirals. They came to me as a, a band that needed the music recording. And I fell in love with it right away. They didn't have keyboards. It was a punk band. It was yeah. just, you know, they had quite shouty vocals, really noisy guitar, manic drums. So I started recording them. I did, a, I did two, I think, two or three demos each of three or four songs. And then by the third time they came in, I just... I'd fallen that much in love with the, the sound of it because I knew that, you know, in my mind, if I could play my 60s electric organ with that band, it sounded like the Velvet Underground because mm. the Velvets were like, they were a dirty punk band and then they had these 
cool keys. And so that was um, what I imagined in my head. And I, I just had the audacity one night to set to Graham and he was down. I think they were rehearsing for a gig or something. And I said, what do you think about me jamming with you with this organ? Because it, it all sounded incredible, you yeah. know what I mean? And Graham said, yeah, let's try it. So we, we, we wheeled the organ into the, the live room. Craig was sat at his drum kit. He'd only been in the band a couple of weeks. He was only 14 at the time. And I can't remember who was on bass at that point. I think it was Mark Hughes was playing bass. We, we went through quite a lot of bass players before mm-hmm. we found Martin, who became the, ultimately the bass player. We wheeled this organ in, and there was never any discussion with Craig. I mean, we never told him what was going on. He just like thought I was jamming with him because it's my studio. And, you know, I can do what I want. <laughs> it just sounded great, and that was it. I was in. Was it but, an instant moment? Was it a proper like click? That, oh, this, is, this is different. This is good. For me, yeah. Right. I, and it wasn't like, you know, I didn't see the future and think we're going, this is going to take us around the world. It yeah. wasn't like that. It was like, this excites me a lot. Because I was big on psychedelic music and 60s garage music and The Doors and 13th mm. Floor Elevators. And I was really into my 60s keyboards. And the fact that I'd had this keyboard for a few years and I'd finally found a perfect vehicle for it. I had other keyboards. I could have brought my 80s synths in there, you know what I mean? But this was like... The sick, 1966, this thing was built in, in Italy, the Farfisa Compact Duo. And we brought it in, and it just, that was it. It, it didn't just change my destiny. Mm. It, it changed the band's direction completely because nobody else had anything like yeah. that. Any other bands in the 80s that were using keyboards or organs were using the um, Hammond organ, which was, you know, that's like a definitive sort of sound. But mine was completely different. Mine was a, this really weird electronic like screechy, mm. <laughs> but, but yeah, it, 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 that that sound over the years, I think it's fair to say, it defined the sound of the Inspiral Carpets. Yeah. So we're talking now, kind of eighty five, eighty six, eighty seven, as this album's coming together before its release in nineteen ninety. By the time it comes out in nineteen ninety, we're kind of seeing the beginnings of the the Manchester scene. We've got the Stone Roses making music. We've got Happy Mondays making music. When you released the album, did you feel like you were part of that? movement at the time was it a kind of thing of hey look we're doing this thing that's unique to the city or is that something that comes from being able to reflect back on it 30 years down the line by the time the album came out we'd released a string of singles each one becoming more successful than the last as the other bands are doing as well mm. so by the time ours came out in i think it was march of 1990 wasn't it it felt very much like we we're part of this scene you know i think by then i think mad madchester had been coined you know the name madchester and we you know our album very neatly slotted into that scene which we were dead happy about it just meant that everything was going to become we were already on our journey we were already going to go to japan and places like that we knew it because you know john peel was right behind us and it's only a matter of time before the major labels come to you so um is that pure coincidence that sonically it kind of fitted in with what manchester sounded like it's funny because when you you listen to it we didn't sound anything like the manchester bands you know and that's one of the things i like about i think it's that touch of psychedelica that you kind of touch on it's it's that that kind of is the association i think yeah that's it yeah it's almost like a spirit thing isn't it like the the roses had that hint of psychedelia the mondays did even james did you know james like a psychedelic folk band to me back then so yeah we, we very much became part of manchester and it just meant that as i said everything was going to be happening a lot quicker and it did, you know, within months we were off to see the world and, you know, people around the world would be, journalists around the world would be saying, tell us about Manchester, tell us about So everybody knew, you know, what Manchester was. Yeah. Uh, and it really put Manchester on the, the map in a way that previously only Manchester United had done. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's like suddenly they weren't just asking about United, they're asking about the other Manchester bands. And the funny thing is, the amount of times where we'd be doing some interviewing South America and the journalists would say, tell us about the other Manchester bands. Do you get on with them? Happy Mondays, Soup Dragons, Primal Scream. You know what I mean? <laughs> suddenly it's like all these other like, bands that became, I suppose, Britpop, ultimately. A lot of them were like really 
you know, thrown into the, the yeah. Manchester category, which was funny. But yeah, it was it was a great time. You know, it's one of the favourite times of my life, you know, in, in terms of when I think back to that period, 1990, and our records are getting played on the radio and you, you'd walk down the street, you'd hear people playing it out of the bedrooms, you know, along with the Roses album and mm. Della Soul's first album. And it was like, it was a great time to be right in the middle of that crazy sort of hurricane of energy and colour. And when I think back, when I think back to that period in my life, that, that you know, 1990, 91, it was never raining. In my memories, it, it didn't rain in Manchester. You know I mean, it was just always sunshine, and all the kids had coloured clothes on and cool sneakers, and you know, it's Oldham Street, and just everybody was happy. And it's, it, it probably wasn't like that, but you know, in hindsight, that's you know, my my rear view vision of it is is that it was a really colourful, warm, and positive time. And the camaraderie between the bands was was brilliant, mm. and it still is to this day. It still is, you know, it's it's a real close community of people you know between all them bands and it's uh, I think that's a real testament to the spirit of the city and its people that yeah. that's how it is it was never really competitive from what I can remember you know we, we were big fans of the Mondays and massive fans of the Roses and James so it was um, yeah to me one of the greatest times of my life I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of tracks off the album in a moment stuff that you've got memories attached to or that are significant or you could decide why you pick those tunes but I want to talk about this is how it feels that you've already mentioned now I know it's a song that's really personal to you in terms of kind of the subject matter of the song but how does it feel with its new life if you like because it is sung as you hinted at earlier at Manchester City they've changed the meaning changed the lyrics slightly from yeah. this is how it feels to be City it's kind of the lyrics now does that give you kind of mixed emotions that the original meaning's kind of been taken away from it and it's got this new context to it or is it just pleasing to see a new generation discovering your music I see it as a, a child it's my eldest child you know it's like it was my baby I, you know I wrote it, it was a very personal thing you know a very personal experience that made me write it and then you know it became a hit record and it opened a lot of doors for me professionally if it wasn't mm. for that song I probably wouldn't be sat here now doing this you know I mean? and I wouldn't have a radio career it's, like, it's opened that many doors mm. over the years but to see it go off into you know the football world and the cricket world and I've really enjoyed it even though it's people winding each other up so it's slightly <laughs> negative in that respect isn't yeah. it but it's like it is like that child that's gone off it's become an adult now and gone off into the world and it's having its own life and it doesn't have to ask for my permission to is it all right if United fans sing it to wind City up which is what they used to do isn't it 10 years ago yeah and then City claimed it's their own yeah City conquered the world and they, they claimed it and then last I heard I think Leeds United were using it their fans were using it one of the big Glasgow teams uses it you know in the same way it's fans winding each other up mm. but but yeah, I love it. And it's, you know, I think like a lot of artists, if it started getting used for the wrong purpose or for a message that I didn't agree with, I think, you know, collectively, I think the band would say you can't do that. But um, no, so far, I, I love it that it's, you know, it's a massive part of people's um, culture, isn't it? If, you, if you're into these Premier League teams, you know that song. You might not know that I wrote it or the yeah. Inspirers recorded it, but you know that song. And I often say, you know, on a weekly basis, it must be one of the most sung songs in the UK. Yeah, because it's it's sung by tens of thousands of people on the tourists every week at one stadium or another. You know what I mean, so it'd be, it'd be nice. I mean, we get PRS obviously when it's on the radio, but it'd be nice <laughs> if we um, if we got some sort of royalty for every person that sings it on a weekend. You know what I mean, <laughs> they could put like a couple of pence in like a pot as they leave the stadium. Oh, that'd be great, wouldn't go. it? I'd be lauded by now. That's for Clint. Um, <laughs> what I didn't realise until I was doing a bit of research on this album is the version that I know that gets played on the radio that we hear everywhere. The lyrics are different, I understand, from the original version. Yeah, I'll tell you how that came about. I've never told this story, but it's, um, it's something I don't mind sharing. So the original version, the second verse, it hints at 
or it suggests that there's been a suicide. The album version seems they found him under a train. Yeah, he had it all on a plate, I think yeah. it was. When we decided to release it as a single, we had a record plugger in, based in London who suggested, you know, the, the, nobody demanded it, they suggested, as you would if you had a record that had, uh, you know, profanities in it, you do a radio edit. Mm. And this, uh, this person suggested we should maybe tweak the lyrics so it wasn't as gruesome. Uh, not, that's not the right word. Graphic is the word I should have used. You know what I'm saying? So it's still, you know, the final version for the single is still suggesting the same thing. Yeah. Black car drives through the town, which indicates a funeral. Some guy from the top of state left a note for a local girl. Yeah, he had it all on a plate. So it still suggests that, but um, in a less gruesome manner. And yeah, I, I mean, I think ultimately it, it probably was the right thing to do because it helped us have that hit record, which then went on to open all them doors. How easily did you take the decision to make the change? Because you've got this bit of art that you've created and then someone's going, well, even though it's not in force, someone's going, well, you might want to change that little bit there. You're right. I mean, but as, as the, the main, the person that wrote that song, I didn't have a problem with it. Yeah. I'd already changed something else in it, which I won't go into on here because it's quite, quite a silly little story. But, you know, as a songwriter in a, in a, a democratic band, you know, it was very de- democratic in Spirals. You know, occasionally somebody would say, that word sounds a bit, dodgy let's yeah, change yeah. that you know so so we, we did that you know and I, I was always happy to do that so yeah I think if you're working in that democratic manner that's that you know you've got to accept that and we, we always split everything five ways so even though I wrote this out of fields you know I wrote the words I wrote the melody it was still we, we credited, credited everything to the five of us which a lot of bands won't do mm. or don't do and they're the ones that you know history has shown they tend to fall out about it when you know the drummer realizes he's not getting the millions that the singers get, yeah, so we from day one we decided we we're going to be a, do a five way split on everything, the credits, the money, and you know to this day I'm glad that we did that because we're still you know we're we're a happy unit even though we're not technically gigging at the moment yeah. we're out of action, but um, yeah we're still I think it's given us that that thirty years or thirty odd years of um, being together is partly because we've always split everything five ways and you know what I mean it's it's, yeah. it's a nice thing to do that. Uh, I'm not saying I'd do it again if I started a new band. I'm, I'm having everything next time. <laughs> right, pick us a couple of tracks off this album that are significant to you or you have memory. I love the fact that you've got your phone out so you're looking at the track listing <laughs> that you can't remember what's on it. I was saying before, you'd be, you'd be shocked if you, if you saw the amount of times where I have to go get on Wikipedia <laughs> to find something out, out about the band or about myself. It's ridiculous, isn't it? I had to go on the other day, like the Clint Boone experience came up in some conversation. I had to get on Wikipedia to see when I when I released my, my first and second Clint Boone Experience albums. I can't remember without looking on Wiki. You never know uh, whether it's right either, so you could be getting facts about yourself wrong. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, yeah. It's funny with Wiki, though, isn't it? Because I, I, I don't know if I told this story back in, um, when we worked at XFM back in the day, I was interviewing um, a band, I can't remember, it, the, it might have been The Hold Steady, mm. something like that. And in the afternoon, I was doing a bit of prep because I'd never met them, I didn't know a lot about them. And I went on Wikipedia to start reading about this band and get some notes together. And as I was reading down Wiki... I saw my name pop up in the following sentence, you know, like ahead of where I was up yeah, to. I was yeah. like, That's my name coming up. <laughs> and I never had any contact with them. And what it said was uh, a recent Reading Festival appearance. Clint Boone in Spiral Carpets was echoing the band so loud that he had to be removed by security from the, the gig. <laughs> I wasn't even at Reading that year and I, I'd, I'd never echo a band like that. So somebody had been in. It was almost like somebody knew that I was going to be doing an interview. Was it you? No, Probably you. It wasn't me. Yeah. I was, you know, like Clint's interviewing the old steady this afternoon. Let's get on Wiki and change it. And then it reminded me that a few days before, my mate was a massive, um, not Iron Maiden, some heavy band. Might have been Whitesnake. He was a big rock fan. Yeah. And he told me, he'd seen a story somewhere about me assaulting one of the guys out of this rock band. 
And I'm like, I've never met them. I've never seen them like that. Anyway, so I went on Wiki, the same day, just after the old steady thing. I went back on Wiki and looked at this other band, whoever it was, yeah. let's say Whitesnake. And sure enough, Clint Boone in Japan Clint attacked Boone the drummer <laughs> in a bar, had the drummer up against uh, some fruit machine and had to be removed by security. <laughs> <laughs> so somebody obviously was getting on Wiki and terrorising me a bit. But it's funny, I saw the funny side of it. I don't think the old Steady did when I told them about it. <laughs> well, let's hope the track listing's right anyway yeah. for, for this album. So what are you going to pick? Let's go for something fairly conventional that you don't hear a lot on the radio, Song for a Family. So it's the second track on the album. Mm. And I wanted to just capture the... The you know the simplicity of a average working class family really. I think the first verse is there's a man in the corner of the tap room. So it's the the, the dad's in the pub mm. playing dominoes. There's the, the kid out of the family. It's the tourists. See the kid on the Saturday tourists. His team are losing, but he still believes he's going to win. So and then the last verse is the the lollipop lady. That's a mum in the family. So I just wanted to write a song for a family. There was just the kind of working class family that I'd been in. I am in. And I was, I was surrounded by people like this. Yeah. We lived in a corner shop. So I saw this all the time. And the one common thing, which is the main chorus in it, that we all think is that he prays every night that his family's all right and he's got work. And that's that's all it is. Mm. It's just that. The sort of basic common denominator of all working class families, isn't it? How much of this album is you observing life around you, whether it's what's going on in your life or whether it's what's going on around you in the estate or whatever it was? Um, I'm looking on Wiki again now. <laughs> Fifty <laughs> yeah. percent of this album um, is Clint observing stuff. <laughs> I can see four songs on there that definitely the the songs that I wrote. So, song for family is about a family. This is how it feels. Is about it's it's like a, a kitchen sink drama. That song. I'm not going to go into too much detail mm. about what made me write it. Uh, but yeah, that's what I wanted to capture the drama of a family where there's something going on and you know kids don't know what's wrong with mum, uh, husband don't know what he's done. Directing traffic was about the madness that I saw in you know around the Hacienda era to do with drugs, you know, the, the effect that drugs was having on people. Yeah. That, that's what made me right, directing traffic. And then Sackville closing track was literally about, our office at the time was on Sackville Street in Manchester. We're on the second floor of the uh, the building, 42 to 44 Sackville Street, the building's still there. And looking out of our office, I mean, back then it was the red light area. That's what it was, it, was, yeah. it wasn't the village. So you'd literally see the prostitutes and, and the rent boys just going about the business, you know, and it was a song about that. It was an observation, not a comment, if anything, the comment was siding on the hardship that these people were going through, mm. having to do what they were doing. So that's one of I think Sackville's probably, as a songwriter, I think it's possibly my, my greatest achievement writing that, I think. I think it sums up the album quite well, Sackville, because when you listen to this album, it's kind of got this bright, sometimes poppy feel. Like, you're right, it's a garage record, but it's definitely got a pop thread through it, and it yeah. feels very bright, and it feels very positive and optimistic. But a lot of the subject matters on it are quite... Dark. Yeah, yeah. Were you really conscious of that juxtaposition of going dark subject matters, upbeat song? No, you know what? It, it, I wasn't aware of it. And, and even outside of the album, you know. But apart from this, like I wrote the song "Joe," which is on the album. It was a single that preceded the album, but it wasn't on it. And that was about an actual homeless guy that used to know in Ashton that mm. lived near the mill. And I wrote him a song, and the idea was I was going to record it and then play it to him. And he died before we finished it, before we recorded it. So I, I've, I always wrote songs about strong subjects people usually yeah the suicide in this out feels you know that song looks it's very much a me- mental illness sort of reference in that song joe was the homeless chap sackville was the prostitutes the family and song for family and then later on on the next album beast inside writing about in 1991 no 1990 i went to uh, washington dc and met the protesters that were outside the white house met them one night after a gig 
Uh, they're all living in tents and protesting against like nuclear arms and all that. And I wrote a song about them, Sleep Well Tonight, which again, I'm very proud of it, you know what I mean? So I think I always wrote, I didn't just write about, mm, I'm lonely, I'm in my bedroom, yeah. what am I going to do when I get drunk? Mm. It wasn't, it was never like that with me. It was always something very strong that inspired it. And I, I, I didn't realise at the time that's what. Was any of that like kind of the, the young man, like the angry young man side of things, the kind of like, I want to make an impact, I want to put issues right, that kind of thing? No, I'll tell you what it was. I, I've always seen myself. I've always been into photography yeah, and I've always been very visual about, you know, the way I, I think and the things I do, you know, I'm really into visual arts. And I always saw my, my, my role as a songwriter as being a photographer. And I think it's very much in the, the same style as Guy Garvey. I think he does mm. the same thing. My, my favourite songwriters are the ones that create pictures just in, in a simple sentence. So, yeah, I think at the time I was just taking photographs, uh, but, there were, you know, there weren't little images on glossy paper these were songs yeah. you know photographs and songs that's all it was just observations of what was going on around me at the time God pick us another track off the album let's talk about Memories of You uh, track 7 so it opens up side 2 if you've got the vinyl version and this was based around a piece of music which we'd recorded it for the album session and I think it was going to be pure instrumental and it's it's something that it had come from a live jam we used to do this piece of music I think when we started the gigs <laughs> and we recorded it, really weird psychedelic thing. And then during the session, we did an interview with, the, I think it was two young girls that came to interview us for a fan, fanzine. And we went outside the studio to do it. And outside, out of the blue studios, this is in Blossom Street in Ancourts, mm. where the studio was now is, is sort of a, a convenience store. I can't remember the name of it, but the building's still there. We came out of the front door to the left of the building. There was like a little bit of wasteland. And that's where we, we sat just hanging out and doing this interview with the girls with, for the fanzine. And I think what happened was that their batteries run out in their cassette machine. So I always carried a micro cassette. Do you remember those little dictaphones you used yeah, to call yeah. them? Use your finger like everybody else. <laughs> Is this going out after nine o'clock? We'll probably be all right with that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so the batteries run out, if I remember rightly. And I said, I've got my little um, micro cassette thing here. I've still got all the tapes, and I started with this thing in 1983. I walked around with it in my pocket. From 1983 up until about 1992, I was still recording everything. If it was in the pub, I'm going to laugh, I'd record. Anyway, so I said to these girls, let's use my micro cassette. So we got it recorded, started asking the questions. And while we were talking into this, an homeless chap came along, or a, a drunk. It was like, well, it might have been both, I don't know, but <laughs> he, he wasn't in a good state. And he came up to us, like these people often do, and he just started, like, like, Pretty much saying, what are you doing? What are you doing? What's mm. that? You know, yeah, yeah. we're holding them. And said, microphone, we're doing a little interview for these uh, young ladies here. And he kept, it, 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 it kept going, it went on for about a minute or two, this, this mumbling. And then eventually started singing into it. Memories of you. And I'm thinking, this is, this is magic. This is like perfect for that track we've been working mm. on in the studio. So I just let him go as long as we could get him. So what year on Memories of You? is this psychedelic instrumental that I think it was called something completely different originally, but when we put the guy's vocals on it, and we never asked him for permission. So did, it, did he get the royalty? He's probably not around <laughs> anymore, is he? I don't think he had long left, this fella. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's his vocal. Wow. It, it's his vocal all the way through it. And then I used to do a lot of cutting up tapes and making, getting weird sounds and doing, uh, not sampling, because sampling wasn't a thing back then. But making these collages of sounds and weird, weird soundscapes, and you can hear some of that going on in the background. Like you might hear some whales in there. I was always messing around with whale sounds and things right. like that. But the main vocal is this homeless chap that had had a drink, and uh, yeah, it recorded 
on Blossom Street wow. in Ancourts. Wow, great story. Before we finish, I want to talk to you about the re-release and obviously the plans for that, which yeah. if you're listening to the podcast, then it is out now. You can go and get the reissue. But I want to just finish off this chat about the album by talking about what I guess was the end of the journey for this album, or certainly within its kind of mini life, would have been the GMEX show in Manchester, because that was at the end of the tour from this album, mm. which is one of those gigs that still gets talked about, I think, yeah. in Manchester as a bit of a legendary performance at the old um, exhibition centre. 21,000 people there singing your songs back to you. Yeah. How does that feel as a local lad from up the road in Oldham, you're playing what would have been the biggest venue in Manchester at the time to a packed out crowd singing your songs when four years ago you were kind of just beginning making them? It's funny because we it was, it was a massive moment in time for us. I don't think we realised it on the night because at that point we'd been, it was August, wasn't it? Uh, July, sorry. 21st of July, 1990. I only remember that because we called it 21790. We were on fire, like live-wise. We'd been gigging and gigging. We were just playing. We were at the top of our game at that yeah. point. And, yeah, it was our hometown gig. It was 11,000 people. Oh, was that okay? Yeah, that was the maximum capacity back then. I did on 10,000. Yeah, no, I don't mind. You can do that if you want. In fact, let's use your version. Um, our support band was the Lars, which a band, they were a band that they weren't as successful as they became or as well-known, but we'd fallen in love with the early demos that we did. So we got them to support us, which... You know, we were just in awe of the Lars. And it was it was the first gig, I think, that my mum and dad came to. So my mum and dad had seen me, you know, writing songs in my, my bedroom in their house, because that's where I was living at the time. And then they'd seen me, you know, slogging it up and down the country, getting in the back of a van to go and do gigs all over the place. And I think their first time seeing us live was at GMEX. Right. And from the stage in GMEX, the, the guest list was always up on your left-hand side from the stage. And I can remember looking at my mum and dad and just... Because see, they were just absolutely mesmerised by the scene. Because I, you know, we were on stage; they're playing like absolute professionals. Yeah, which we were by that point. The crowd was singing the songs that my mum and dad had heard me working on at home. Do you know what I mean? That literally. And you're still their little boy. Yeah, you're always I'm the still, boy. I'm still, I still am. I still am. But um, yeah, so it was it was a massive moment for us. I don't remember being nervous because we were that. You get to a stage when you're in a band that. You know, if it's five o'clock in the afternoon and you're about to play to 20,000 people, you know that you, you're you good at that point. You know mm. you can do it, you know, even half drunk, which we usually were. Yeah, I, I don't remember being nervous. I remember being just really happy and content, thinking my life's going to be a lot better than I thought it was because of, you know, what's happening here. I remember Dave Booth, the famous DJ, who sadly passed away not long ago. I remember he came up to us um, after the gig at GMEX, and it's a, it's a line that we still talk about. In, in, in the spirals, he said to us, you'll never starve. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I probably won't now. I nearly have done a couple of times, but I've, I've always had Dave's voice in my head reminding me, just, you'll never starve. But yeah, what a great compliment. Yeah, so it, it, but yeah, a top top moment mm. for me. And it, it was it was the end of that chapter, as you said. I think during that gig, I think we did a couple of songs that we knew at the time, which became tracks for the next album, The Beast Inside, which is a completely different album. You couldn't have two more... They're, they're opposite ends of the spectrum in a lot of ways, those two albums. We, we, a lot of people said to us back then, it didn't get great reviews, but a lot of people said, you made your fifth album second, didn't you? <laughs> you know what I mean? So we made an album that we, by the time, you know, bands like 10CC or whatever get five, six albums in and they start just being really weird and experimental. Yeah, right. We did that as our second <laughs> album. So a lot of people didn't get it at the time, but in hindsight, it, people have got a lot of love for that and realised mm. that that is a masterpiece as well, you know. So yeah, the, but the reissues, we were reissuing Life, 
and the beast inside simultaneously. Okay. So, and Life is now on a, a gold vinyl edition and the new beast inside is a double album on purple vinyl. Is it as it was originally we've added reprinted? One, we've added one track to the beast inside only because there was one track that was recorded during the, during the same session for the album, mm. which we didn't have, we, there, was, there wasn't enough space on the album. If, if we'd have put it on, the, the, the tracks would have been so close together that sonically it wouldn't have sounded great. Yeah. So we just used it as a B-side. It's a track called Skidoo. So we added that to the um, Beast Inside album for, the, for this pressing. But it's nice. I mean, it, it, the nice thing is about these the, al- the albums that have just been reissued was it wasn't led by the band. We've still got a great relationship with Mute Records. Yeah. Even though we're not, we're not tied to them these days in any, you know, any way, but we do work with them. We're still part of that family. And it was uh, the people at Mute who came to us and said, Look, how, how do you fancy putting these albums out, you know, 30 years on? You know, 31 we, years on. <laughs> 31 years on, yeah. And we were like, yeah, let's do it. So it's very, it's very much the band, you know, we, we were all in touch on emails. We brought Tom into the conversation. Yeah. Well, Tom left the band in 2011, but he's the one who's singing on these records. So he's very much part of this, this new release. Yeah, so it's just, it's nice that people still want it, isn't it? After all this time, it's, we, we have got more longevity than we yeah. thought we had when we were cutting it back in the day, you know. Could it spark a... Not a reformation gig because you never split up, but could it spark live dates? Do you think if there's a real popularity behind the releases? You know, I, I've got a feeling. This is just me totally saying this off, you know, on my own that something will happen in time. Some point in time, something will happen again yeah. with the Inspirals in terms of live. I'm, I'm convinced it will. At the moment, I can't see when it will be. Partly because we're all, you know, we're all busy doing what we do. I mean, I'm particularly busy doing what I do, and some of that is new music. Yeah, I'm recording new music and putting new music out, and hoping to go and gig that at some point. But yeah, I think I, I reckon at some point the phone will go off, and it'll be somebody saying, "Right, Inspiral's back on the road. What do you think?" And I, I've not shut that door. I don't think any of the, the people in the band have. But at the moment, you know, we're still recovering from losing Craig. Really, that's mm. the, the the truth of it. Is that you know, it's five years now since Craig passed away, so. You, you would have thought a year or two after that we might have done something, but it's five years and it still doesn't feel right yet. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and I think because we're all occupied with other, other jobs, other careers, it's not the only thing we were doing. When Craig died in 2015, if we'd have been just a professional band doing it and nothing else, yeah. you know, being a band, I think we would have carried on for the sake of the crew as well as ourselves, you know what I mean? But uh, no, it, it was, I said this in 2015, in 2014, it was like because we had we all had other jobs. If you remember, I was doing a radio show from different parts of the country, mm. like before sound checks and stuff like that. Yeah, I think it was. It was just. It was at that point. It was like the, the greatest hobby that anybody's ever had. You know, it's like outside of work, we've got this band called the Spirals. Yeah, we yeah. just put, <laughs> we put our fifth album out in 2014, I think it was, and we were seeing we were traveling the world. You know, and it was just it was just our hobby because you know I was a radio presenter and Graham was working for SJM. Stephen had a job um, working for. You know, in Manchester, and it was just like this. It was like I tell you, it was like it was like having a really fancy vintage car in your garage, mm. and then every couple of years we bring it out and show it off, and that's what the Inspirals was until we stopped gigging in 2015. I'm sure at some point we'll get it out. Cause it's still in there, isn't it? It's still in the garage. Sounds like a never say never slash watch this space yeah. slash other. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I think it'd be, it'd be easy to say. It'd be easy for any one of us to say, no, nah, it's not going to happen. Yeah, but nobody's said that, and I'm not saying that. Yeah, and I still, you know, there's that much love for it, for what we created, that it'd be a shame if it never got taken out there again, wouldn't it, really? Definitely. Clint, it's been really nice to chat to you about this classic album, so really appreciate your time. Absolute pleasure, man. Keep up the great work. The Excess Manchester Long Player, an iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.
Unami. That is it for today's XS Long Player. Cheers to your ears. Appreciate your time listening to this podcast. It was a good one, wasn't it? There's loads more in this series for you to check out. If this is the first XS Long Player you've ever listened to, there's loads of different conversations with loads of different people, probably about your favourite artists. Sticking with the Manchester thing for the time being, there are conversations with Twisted Wheel, Blossoms, Cortinas, Happy Mondays, Badly Drawn Boy, Liam Frost. There's loads of music based in this amazing city featuring on this show. So spin back in the episodes. Have a listen to some of the previously released podcasts. And if you like them, make sure you follow for more because there's some good ones coming. Also, as every podcast says, like and review. Drop us a five stars in Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening. Not only is it a lovely little ego boost for me, but it also helps the show grow. And I'll see you next time for another classic album on the XS Long Player. Manchester's indie rock and roll station, XS Manchester.